Hey guys, welcome to Mike It Up. Today we're going to talk about some things that we think traditional mattress brands can learn from online mattress brands. Stick around. Welcome to Mike It Up with GoodBed.com's Jeff Cassidy. So when that's the case, it becomes harder just psychologically to make a change. And Mike Magnuson. If you're doing those things, you can be competitive long term. Just when you thought these number crunching data lovers couldn't get any nerdier, they started a podcast. And I know this is pretty controversial, but this is why we're having a podcast, right? But if you want to be smart about how the mattress shopping journey is changing and what retailers and manufacturers should be doing about it, well then, man, have you ever found your people? Because right now, it's time to mic it up. Right on. You get a Mother's Day present yet? Not till tomorrow. You get a card? Do you do cards? I make her a card. Like a personal letter, letter, note. Like, does it, does it have personal. drawings on it? You do draw, do you draw like cards <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> there may be a heart on there. Yeah. Ian and Lila are going to be making cards, so that's yeah. No, but I. Maybe it's know. like until you have your own you... kids, you just continue making cards. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Does Chris make I don't cards? Think, I don't think kids, it doesn't work. It only works one direction. It works handwritten note card to your mom. Your mom likes it. No, I meant though, like, but once you from, have your own dad kids, to then, your kids. But once you have your own kids, then they are the ones making the cards for, you know, like, does it, like my my test of this theory is does Chris make cards for your mom? No. <laughs> so that could so the theory could hold. Like <laughs> once you have your own kids, then they are the ones who are the ones making the cards. Oh, and I see what you're saying. It's there can only be one generation at a time that's making at cards. It, exactly. So you're the bottom of your generation, so you're making cards <laughs> until the point where you have your own yeah, kids. I can't, and, tell you, can't tell you how many times I hear that. You're the bottom of your own generation. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, different, different words where, used for different we words met. used for bottom. I mean, they that's, don't use the word bottom; they use a different yeah, word for that's bottom. That's where we but, met, yeah. just scraping along the bottom of our generation. You know, yeah. we were just kicking, kicking along the bottom, and we like looked around and saw each other there. And uh, no, that's just the theory. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so if you ever want to get out of that situation, have some, where just make, have some kids. Just have some kids. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're, that's a, then you're, that's a very you're expensive way out. I could also just, <laughs> I could also just decide to buy a card. That'd be a little cheaper, easier. Yeah, but I don't know if that violates the rule or not. That's the only thing. You have to kind yeah. of make cards till you yeah. have the kids. Anyway, I don't know how your, I don't know how Carol is on this front, but uh, our mom uh, appreciates more something that's personal that like. The fact that you took the time to write a card and it has a message of no love doubt. in it, she appreciates that more than if I went to the store and bought a card and said, love Jeff. You know? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. In fact, our, yeah, our family always did cards. I suck. So I have kind of gotten out of that habit, but my sister's still really good about it. And even she if it's buying, or... no, well, she doesn't know if she makes them, but like, even if the, what we more did is we would buy a card. And then we would write a yeah. message. It wasn't just like we didn't just sign it. We we would add a message. And, you know, with my grandmother, my my dad's mom, like, oh, my gosh, it was like 
waterworks every time. It was mm -hmm. part of the. It was just part of any holiday or birthday to just watch her cry as she read <laughs> each card. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she she just got so much joy out of it. So we you know we would we would write those. Um, I, I I like I said I'm. I'm terrible. I've gotten out of the habit of that, sadly. But my, I'm sure my mom would appreciate it. And actually, our kids are really good about that. They really they write us notes, and I love it. As a dad, I seriously, not even joking, I have on my own nightstand to like Father's Day cards from my kids from last Father's Day. Really? I mean, I guess maybe in my defense, it's, is I don't it because get because it's the only time that they say something positive about pretty you. Pretty much, <laughs> the gratitude doesn't rear its head that many other times during the year so i have to remind myself i have to use that father's day card to just get through sometimes uh the teenage particularly the teenage years here are not replete with a lot of explicit gratitude so <laughs> the, the the cards that i get i cherish yeah yeah you cherish those i can see that no doubt. my my favorite card making for mom i don't maybe not for receiving but it was fun making was her 70th birthday and made a card out of wood with a hinged card out of wood so brass hinges and uh wood engraved like with with a wood burner and oh was this in the 1800s or when was this <laughs> <laughs> this was five six years ago yeah okay whatever she's yeah Anyway, that was a, that was my most that's time hardcore. Spent, most time spent on making a card was that one, and but it was but it was fun. Next time she hits a major milestone birthday, you're gonna chisel a tablet for her. Yeah, marble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hey, let's dive into the content for today. Where this is kind of a continuation of our last episode, in which we talked about some things that we thought brick and mortar retailers could learn from online retailers. This time we're going to turn the microscope towards the brand side of the equation. We thought that the was microphone. only <laughs> Exactly. Uh, we thought that was only fair. Uh, so let's, let's talk about uh, some ideas, really just where we think there could be learning. And again, we'll set the stage in a similar way, which is that, you know, this is certainly something that could go the opposite direction. I'm sure there are things that we could do a whole episode on about what online brands can learn from traditional brands. One thing that comes just to the top of my head would be things like how to make your products, how to design products that really stand out and appeal to people on a physical sales floor. Um, things like that, I'm sure are things that many, many online brands are in the process of trying to learn right as we speak. Yeah, or, or having different models to target different people. So right. having multiple right. models, so that, that one's happening already too. Yeah, people they're diversifying their product lines and different price points and different yet yeah, catering to different needs uh, from the consumer's standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, there's there's lots I believe that uh, just like with retailers, we could turn the tables and say, uh, this is something that the online guys could learn from the traditional guys. But in this case, we're going to talk about the other direction, we think it makes a little bit more sense to start with this in so far as the general market share trends, of course, for the last six, seven years have been that the online guys can have continued their incursion on this space in terms of stealing share. So I think clearly there is a lot to be learned uh, from what they're what they've been doing 
And I guess along those lines, we should also, just like we did with retailers, start with some things that probably the brands have already learned. And, you know, we could hat tip to the brands for, from, from that standpoint. I mean, one of those things would be, to my way of thinking, the seven, eight years ago, the brands, most traditional brands in this space had been neglected really insofar as any kind of consumer branded marketing efforts went, you know, where they, they were doing some advertising, but it was basically just co-op advertising. And, you know, I remember, for example, when I came into this space back in 2010, I, I had already started the site a couple of years earlier and got it to a point where there was enough audience that I thought, well, I should start to meet some people in the industry. And I remember going into Sealy and discovering in at talking market, to people right? there. What's that? At a market. At, at, yeah, exactly. I went into a Las Vegas market, walked into a, a Sealy showroom, asked for the head of uh, consumer marketing to speak with and was taken to someone who said, oh, no, I think you have me confused. I'm the head of marketing, but really it's to, to retailers and our, that would be our customers. That's who we're marketing to. And I said, oh, my bad. I must have not been clear. Who would be the person to speak to about consumer marketing? And this person sort of thought for a moment and goes, well, I guess that's still me. Uh, <laughs> and at that point, it became very clear that Sealy had nobody in 2010 whose job it was to do consumer marketing. Um, so that obviously has changed substantially. I mean, it's hard to even imagine that it was, frankly, it was hard for me to imagine even then. I couldn't believe yeah. this is the brand that was the, in my mind at the time, the biggest consumer brand in the mattress category and didn't have a single person whose job it was to manage that brand or build that brand or build value in that brand. Right. And to be fair, you're not uh, singling them out as being worse than everybody else. You're saying, no, I'm just, this, this, was, as... this was the one of, if not the leading brand at that time in your mind and as yeah. representative of the industry. Just using that, them as emblematic of what was happening right. at the time. If they didn't have somebody, chances are nobody did. And uh, that all has changed. Like the, a lot of brands now have consumer marketing, like, and they're putting a lot of emphasis to their credit on consumer marketing and building their brands, doing it directly, not just through co-op advertising, doing it through advertising that they can control the messaging of and, and using it to try to build value in their brands. And so that's something I think that has come a long way. And it's an area where I think they have learned a lot from online brands. Like they've learned how mm -hmm. important it is to have an identity and to be, and, and in order to have that identity, you've got to, you have to build it, you have to build it and you have to be messaging those consumers directly. You can't, it can't be a telephone game thing where you're sending the message into the retailer and then the retailer sends it on to the consumer. If you want to have the identity that you want to have, you got to tell that story directly. Right. And usually also co-op dollars are ads for the retailer, which cover multiple brands, right? So you're not going to have as depth of brand message communication for your own brand if it's an ad for that covers three other types of mattresses that are. Well, yeah. I mean, sometimes a, a co-op ad could be focused on one brand, but and sometimes it could be they could pool dollars from multiple brands to do one single ad creative. But nonetheless, it's still going to be, even if it's focused only on your brand, it's still going to be the retailer packaging up your message mm -hmm. within their message, which is not the same, you know, and, and their message PS 
in a lot of cases is going to have something to do with prices and promotion and things like that. Um, it's just not the same as controlling the message directly end to end. And, right. and so again, not to say that co-op advertising isn't important. It's just, I don't want to just draw a distinction that it's not the same. And brands, I think have realized that, that there's value in both kinds of mm -hmm. advertising. So that's something that has certainly changed. I think that also where people advertise has changed to a degree where these brands who are advertising are choosing to advertise has changed to a degree. So insofar as I think that, you know, when, let's say 2013, 2014, even, even post Casper, I remember any kind of, uh, bragging about brands, uh, about, about brand campaigns always focused on TV spend. We're going to spend a hundred million dollars on TV would be like the headline that they would want to have in furniture today. And it was always about TV because TV was sexy. TV was what was going to dazzle the retailers and impress them. And it spoke to the point of view that really this, the brand campaign wasn't really about building this brand or really about driving pull demand for these products. It was really more about driving demand from the retailer base, you mm -hmm. know? So they were, this was just another selling point that they could use with the retailers to say, Hey, you should put more of our products on your floor because we're going to spend a hundred million dollars on TV. And had it been focused on, you know, the end goal of really driving pull demand, there would have been a lot of things done differently to try to reach in market shoppers. And there would have been more of an emphasis on taking the interest that they were generating and actually funneling it into their dealers through, for example, having a store locator on their website which at that time, very few people, very few, very few manufacturers did because mm -hmm. uh, they were worried about, they were more worried about having other sales reps from other companies go poach their customers than they were about actually helping consumers who were interested in their products find those products in their market. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that has changed. I mean, if you think about it, like almost every of the major brands, almost all of them have store locators and even down the line, a lot of brands now way more have store locators, way more are spending their money, their advertising dollars on digital. And so that's, that's a, a, a great start. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about like <laughs> shades of gray there that, that are, in, that are really critical and important later on. But I just want to pay some homage to the fact that I think there's been a lot of, yeah, the mix is learned mix has shifted towards yeah. digital, which is good. Yeah. And the mix is, and, and the, I think the, They've tried to move towards more metrics that they can measure that, that really do mm -hmm. translate into the retailer more and, and actually driving uh, demand. Traffic into the, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think another area where I think the brands have, have learned a lot is as it relates to this unique model names. And, you know, for, for decades, brands allowed retailers to essentially to demand this uh, having unique model names in each of their stores and what it did is of course it deprived them of the ability to build value in their unique products you know because when you have a product when you have multiple products within your brand under that fall underneath your brand but there are always under different names in every different store and so therefore you can't really refer to them in any of your advertising mm -hmm. for those names. Uh, 
Well, those products, they've got different features and benefits. And since you can't refer to the different products by name, you can't refer to any of those features and benefits because, you know, not every product right. has the same features and benefits. So you end up like with this really watered down brand message at the top where it's just kind of like, you know, imagine if like every Honda sold in every dealership had a different name. Like Honda wouldn't be able to tell you about like why the CRV is the best compact SUV for you and all this like these features that it has that make it good. They would just be like, Honda, we've got cars. And <laughs> you should definitely get one. You know, it's <laughs> it would just be <laughs> generic and that's I think a lot of the ads were 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 like that. And so what we've seen now and, and PS the other big limitation is they wouldn't have had any reviews. Reviews, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Yeah, is that you, when you when you have a unique brand name for every retailer, there's there are effectively no reviews or just a couple. That's uh, right. Hurts you badly. And we talked uh, before about the how that name game contributed to anxiety and distrust for the consumer. So it was that's part, right. it was part of that um, negative customer experience. So it fed it into this feeling of being ripped off and right. Yeah. So I, it makes me, me as a consumer feel potentially more ripped off, more at risk, and there's no reviews to make me feel better about it. So yeah. it hurts you in a couple, few different ways. So I think it, clearly we can look at the last seven years and go, okay, brands in this category have learned a lot from this. I mean, the major brands have taken pretty much all of their higher end products and made them into national lines. And a lot of other brands down the line have followed suit with at least some portion of their product lines. They're building national lines within those. And I think that retailers are coming around to the benefits of that, which is, which is great. And so they're, they're not feeling like this is a disservice to them. Mm -hmm. So progress has been made. Learnings have been ad adopted from the success that the online retailers have had Absolutely. in this area. So that's again, like a credit. Um, maybe even another credit would be, I don't know, this is a little bit more borderline. This, this one might be something that I think brands could still learn, learn, learn something from is the kind of on the customer service front. I feel like there was one of the things we can learn from the online brands is they've been exceptional about saying, we're going to make sure that our customers have a great experience. You know, we're going to make sure that, and of course, we're going to make sure that that experience is reflected online in the form of these reviews and what have you. But, but first and foremost, we're going to make sure we could bend over backwards to give them a great experience. And one example of that is like warranty type issues. And I think that the, the sort of modus operandi in the mattress industry for decades has been that this part of the customer service process gets outsourced by the manufacturer to either the retailer who sold the product or to a third party inspector. Mm -hmm. And that I believe is a little bit fraught with peril. Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe it's not just the outsourcing itself. Maybe that part of it isn't the problem, but the certainly the ultimate outcome of this has been that people don't feel that this is that they're, they're being treated right. The issue resolution has not been to people's general satisfaction in this area. It has gotten better, I do think. I mean, in the early days when we started this website, I would say the vast majority of reviews that we got 
were people who were pissed off about having a warranty, warranty claim issue and then yeah properly handled and then but yeah getting the runaround basically you know whether it was hey this is uh, they're still they're saying that this doesn't meet the standard but it's like so clear that it does it should meet the standard or that this is definitely a defect or the you know coming in with the black light and finding a stand you know like hunting around for some way out of uh, of responsibility for handling this problem you know instead of trying to solve a problem they're trying to find a way out of solving a problem right and and another thing some of those would uh, a meaningful portion of those were submitted as store reviews right which highlights the fact that to the consumer i just have an issue like i have an issue and it's not my i don't want to worry about who's responsible i just i have this issue and please Somebody resolved this. Yeah. 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 So they kind of conflate all those entities into their one experience. So, well, and there was in in the, in the consumer's defense, there was the buck was being passed back and forth between the two parties. And so that's, that was fundamentally the problem. I think, I think that that's been improved in a lot of cases, but I think there's still probably room left to learn from that, learn from the emphasis that online guys have placed on, making sure consumers have a good experience and, mm-hmm. and making sure that that there's not people out there who are pissed off, you know, that that squeaky wheel who who is always going to find as many outlets as they can for that, you know, to, to vent their frustration, making sure that that doesn't happen as uh, very often and 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 maybe even turning those those problem cases into success cases mm-hmm. where you can benefit from Hey, look at look at our customer service. We we, we look right. what we did here. This is evidence that we would have your back if you ever encountered such a situation. So, I think online brands have been really good in general about that, and traditional brands have gotten better, but still, I think have something to learn there. And and maybe that involves taking more direct, getting a more direct involvement in handling these cases, or maybe it involves just changing the messaging to these third parties that they're that are handling this and saying, Hey, we want the policy to be make when this in, right. When in doubt support. Yeah. Yeah. When in doubt, make it right. As opposed to when in doubt, look for a way out. Um, think, you know, something <laughs> That's a good along those lines. When in doubt, look for a way out. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that that's, I think that's an area where it's, it's sort of a, a little bit in between, like there's been some progress, but, but more to go. In terms of, you know, another area where it's, it, there, I think there's been some learnings adopted uh, is, is this idea of selling direct. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an area where clearly the benefits of selling direct have been made clear to, I mean, we, we already, P.S., we already kind of knew these benefits, if you thought about it, from Tempur-Pedic and Sleep Number. Like, they already had shown us the benefits of selling direct from the nineties onward, mm-hmm. uh, which specifically are the in higher margin sales that you yield from your direct sales efforts fund an investment in building your brand. That's like essentially an, it's, it's an economic engine that funds the brand building that then that draws traffic into this. Then yeah, creates this trickle down benefit to right. all of your retailers like that, that brand messaging that brand credibility gets built with me the consumer and i then go to the to the local store and say 
I want to check out this. Yeah. Extra. I mean, anybody who carried Tempur-Pedic in the first 15 years that they was in the stores will remember the, the, this exact dynamic. Like they were just advertising like, like mad on television and people would come in saying, oh my gosh, you have this thing that I, <laughs> that I heard, heard about and seen on TV. Like I want to, I want this. So anyone who remembers Tempur-Pedic or sold Tempur-Pedic in those early days should, should get that. Um, the other thing is it allows for review building because you have the, when you sell direct, you have a direct relationship with that customer you have a way to contact them and therefore you have a way to ask for a review and that builds reviews in the product. And so that's another benefit of selling direct. And then the third is, is speed and just product speed to innovate feedback. speed yeah. and speed to iterate based on the feedback that you get. So by having a direct connection to the consumer, you're getting feedback on everything from your marketing message and what's working and what's not working there to even the product and what's working and what's not working there. And you're not having to try to decipher this from some, uh, the telephone game that you talk telephone about game or yeah. intermediaries. So, yeah, so that they've, the online brands have shown that that is an incredibly valuable feedback loop to have. And so those three benefits to me of selling direct are, are meaningful. They, they are their benefits both to the brand as well as to the retailers that carry that brand. Um, and I think that as a result of those being kind of laid bare and made clear by the online brands over the last seven years, a lot of traditional brands have learned from that and started to dip their toe into that water. And mm -hmm. by the way, this is not to say that we think that necessarily all brands should do this. Um, I mean, I think, I think one could make that case. I think I may even have made that case <laughs> myself <laughs> that all brands should, yeah. should do this. But, um, but I do understand that some brands, they want to differentiate themselves as one of the brands that doesn't do this. And, and that retailers do place some value on the idea that this is a product that only consumers can only get in a physical store. And so I get that. And that does make sense to me as well. So, but nonetheless, then they need to find other ways that those, those brands need to find other ways to solve these problems that, you know, to, to address and get these benefits that selling direct offers. And yeah. so that's, and the, also that's the challenge. Selling direct your the brand is uh, building out a website that is effective at selling direct, hopefully. Um, and if they're doing the, the marketing mix, like we talked about before, if that's shifted more towards digital, well, what, what happens then is that brand's website becomes one other destination that a customer might find online that actually increases the likelihood of the retailer getting a sale. If that brand isn't selling direct and their website doesn't, it doesn't get found, it's, not, it's uh, ranking lower because there's no reviews coming in. Reviews coming in consistently will help it rank higher. But if that brand's website is not really found, it's not going to help drive traffic into the store, right? Yeah. So improve, improved um, online appearance and just one other destination to pull a customer in is good for the retailer. Yeah, exactly. And I think anything that they're, that a brand is doing to build value in its brand or create demand for its brand or translate that demand into store visits is, is good for the retailer mm -hmm. who carry that brand. So 
it, again, so that's something I think where we'd say a lot of brands have have learned from the success online retailers have had in taking that approach, but yet there's still probably more to be done there, more value to be extracted from those learnings. Um, and I think so that's that's why we put it kind of at this point on the list. But the the consumer reviews thing, I think, is something maybe we should talk uh, more about because I think consumer reviews for brands have been hard to get in the past, traditional brands. And this is an area where, again, we've learned from the online brands how important consumer reviews are. Hmm. Because if you rewind the clock eight years, we talked about this in the retailer episode, there were no brands that had reviews in this category. So consumers who were interested in buying a product but had reviews were just kind of out of luck. And they were, so it, it was like, in a way, all brands got a because pass. They didn't, because they didn't exist, it didn't Because matter. they didn't exist, they, all brands they, got a pass. Right. And, and so this way, so, but, but, but once the online brands came in and they were able to generate reviews of their products and, and it was a lot easier for them because they had fewer products to start with too. But also they had this, most importantly, they had this relationship with the consumer that they could use to, to ask for those reviews. And they're, yeah, and they're selling nationally. So they have just more customers for this singular product. Yeah. Well, the, the, the brands, the traditional brands are selling nationally too, but nonetheless, the, yeah, but, but through individual entities, right? I so, understand. So, yeah. so, as, but we're thinking about this from the brand standpoint <clears throat> so, and, and the brands the the big advantage is that they the re online guys had the direct relationship with their customer and so but the bottom line was that their success in generating reviews has shown i think clearly that consumers when faced with the choice of between a a product that has a lot of reviews and one that doesn't a lot of consumers will vote with their wallets and and buy the one that does have the reviews so that's, I think, clearly a lesson that traditional brands can learn and to a degree, I guess, have learned probably from the online brands, but they've been really challenged in like, how do you get those reviews? To your point, they don't have that direct connection, even to the extent they've started selling direct. It's, it represents a small portion of their sales. And so a small number of customers relative to the, the number of people out there who have these products, they've got a much broader array of products through uh, that they're trying to build reviews for simultaneously. They probably change their products more often so that they're, you know, the value that they build in reviews then gets lost when they change the product. So there's all kinds of things that are kind of working against them. And there just hasn't been really great tools for this. There's the, the, the only tools that really have been available for brands on this front by and large, the the only way they really work is for massive enterprises, you know. Yeah, well, they're yeah they're priced that way. They're priced that the way. They're designed ones. to target that customer. Like for TSI can afford it, SSB can afford it, and and their biggest retailers can afford it. And by biggest retailers, I'm talking about like their top five, ten, fifteen accounts. You know, think Macy's, Bloomingdale's, those types of of, of retailers can afford it, but the bread and butter of this industry, like that makes up the vast majority of mattresses that are sold out there, those solutions are not for those companies. And so 
that's a that's been an issue for for brands and so we had a um that that's something that like we would say give them a i give them a pass for sure because even though they've learned the lesson they haven't had the tools so right. uh in 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 that respect we're super excited to be sharing in coming weeks some some really cool things on this front because we've were, we've been approached in recognition of this problem retailers have come to us and brands have come to us and said hey what can you guys do as the people who have the largest mattress review platform on the internet what can you do to help us with this problem and i guess shame on us that and shame on me and maybe in particular that we hadn't thought about that before but you know luckily we were we were approached and we've been working on this and and as a result of those efforts we're f super excited to be able to basically solve this solve problem. that we're problem gonna, yeah. yeah we're gonna we're gonna absolutely solve this problem for the industry and and so this is something that we're going to be coming out with and it's going to be a massive benefit to brands and at that point um you know brand brands are going to have yeah, brands, a way to and, be on... brands and retailers and retailers yeah yeah but we're talking about brands today so that's why i, I, I said that but <laughs> but but the uh but they're going to have the ability to be on equal footing with the online guys and that's that's huge mm -hmm. so anyways but yeah you're right it's it's it, it absolutely benefits the retailers uh just as much if not more in a sense because they're the ones ultimately who are going to be generating the, the sales directly for mm -hmm. most of the products that are purchased. So, uh, yeah, so we're super excited. We're, we're kind of sorry for that being a little bit vague on that. We're not quite ready to, to talk about that in detail yet, but we just, you know, we're, we're, we're willing to at least share that this is something that's coming that we're working on. It's going to be awesome. And we're, we're super excited to share more as soon as we're, a little further along uh, with 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 getting it ready for market. So, um, nonetheless, I think product reviews as a, going back to the kind of general theme here of today's conversation, as it relates to brands, brands I think have learned about the importance of product reviews from the online brands. Traditional brands have learned this, mm -hmm. and and soon they will be able to really take that learning and apply it and. In, in terms of uh, helping themselves get to parity with with the online brands through this platform that we're going to be releasing. So now the next thing that we think would be a learning that traditional brands can take from online brands would be about how ad dollars get spent. So we talked a little bit about this earlier in the sense that traditional brands have have learned that it's important to build value in your brand and build value in your products. But how those dollars get spent, I think, is something that there's still room for a lot of improvement there. Because I don't think that the dollars that traditional brands are spending now are working nearly as hard for them as the dollars that online brands are spending. Which, which again, like we, again, as we talked about in the last episode, those dollars that the online brands have, have been spending have worked harder than arguably any dollars in mattress industry history. Yeah. I mean... Previous to this, you might say Tempur-Pedic's dollars worked harder. The, the, the billion dollars that they spent over 10 years on infomercials building that Tempur-Pedic brand was probably the best example of brand building, you know, in a concentrated period of time that this industry has ever seen. And yet, what's, what's happened across multiple brands in, in the last seven years 
in getting multiple brands to this $500 million in sales mark in such a short amount of time, not to mention the, the level of brand awareness that these upstart brands, what, I, what you could still consider upstart brands have, speaks to just how effective their marketing has been and how much bang they've gotten for those dollars. Mm-hmm. And so that's an area I think that, that traditional brands can still improve upon. I think while it's great that most brands are not bragging about the amount of TV spend they have, the reality is they're still spending a lot of money on TV, A. And B, even though you're spending 50% on digital or 60% on digital, just being digital is not enough. Because digital for the sake of digital, or you know, put it this way, there's still most digital advertising you can do is still untargeted. Right. And the whole value, the whole distinction that people should be drawing is what portion of marketing is going towards in-market shoppers. That is the, the way. It's not just because these online brands focus their dollars, the, focus the core engine of their advertising on digital marketing that made it work so well for them. I mean, it's easy to just from a very high level go, oh, they're online brands, they're digital first, they did their advertising digital, that must be the thing that we need to do. That's missing the key. The key that they did was they focused on in-market shoppers first and foremost, which, of course, you can only find digital on digital. Mm-hmm. That's, the only, that's the only advertising channels that allow this. But most digital advertising is not targeted towards in-market shoppers. So, so you've got to specifically focus on the digital channels that are targeted at people who are looking for a mattress right now. That's the thing that the online brands have done better and that the traditional brands, frankly, still could learn a lot from, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just, I say that because, again, uh, I think to, the customer acquisition is so critical in this industry. And if you're going to succeed, it's all about making sure those dollars deliver the most value for you, the dollars that you're putting into that channel, that customer acquisition channel. And if you're putting them towards untargeted media, media, then by definition, you're basically 99% of those dollars are going towards people who don't want a mattress right now. And, right. and the only value you're going to get from that, uh, that advertisement is, do they retain something about your brand or your products that will stick with them for however many years it is till the next time that they're in market for a mattress, which is a, which is a tall ask, I think, to, to say, yeah, we're going to re- leave such a resounding message with them that they're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's the brand I want to get. Uh, I don't even need to do research when the time comes. Yeah, put, uh, putting it another way, though, like you said, the uh, online brands have focused their dollars, number one, on hitting in-market shoppers so Mm -hmm. in-market shoppers are getting no matter what they're getting messages from those brands because that's what the they're they're that's what the brands are doing with their advertising Mm -hmm. so if you are a a traditional brand and you're not doing that it means you're not getting in front of those customers so it's the kind of the or you're not getting your share of voice at a minimum at, at a minimum, but I mean, we see it in, we look at Google search data, right? And you see the, the, 
the searches for those digital disruptor brands outpacing the, uh, the traditional brands. So yeah. it, it's kind of like before Casper, before the online uh, explosion, there was, like we talked about before, there is a lot of TV ads and having your ad on TV was a, a competitive advantage. So upstarts couldn't advertise on TV. You had an advantage by advertising on TV. Um, yeah. This is kind of happening, but at a more micro level now. So targeting in-market shoppers, they're, the share of my, the mind share of those digital, of those online brands is dominating because it's excluding it's at there's not the representation of the traditional brands at the same level yeah i don't know if that that makes any sense but yeah i think so the 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 traditional brands you know someone could argue that if you're doing a tv ad you are reaching those people because you're reaching everybody right like if you do a big enough tv campaign then you then you sprinkled a little bit of 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 magic dust over the whole population including that one percent but the bottom line is that one percent got like 50 messages from Nectar right. and they saw your ad like twice. So, so <laughs> you're not getting your share of messages. Right, but they, and they also saw that message from Nectar when their mind was thinking about that purchase versus That's seeing, true too. seeing it when I'm on Facebook and I'm thinking about what dog puppy video I'm going to watch, you know? So it's, that's, that's a it's, good point. It's, they're, hitting, they're... it's hitting me right when my mind is thinking about what I what I should get for a mattress. That, that's actually kind of a separate uh, point. Is like there's reaching in market shoppers. There's reach. There's reaching what we what sometimes gets called active shoppers, or yeah, I guess let's call them in market shoppers. That's let me try to come up with a vocabulary that's distinctive here. There's in market shoppers, but then there's in market shoppers who are in the process of actively researching this purchase right at the moment you reach them. Mm-hmm. That's a subset, and you definitely want to reach them, and they're infinitely more valuable than anyone else in the 99%. But if you have the opportunity to reach them, that 1%, at the moment in time they've specifically carved out to think about this purchase, that is infinitely more valuable than reaching that same person in some other time. Mm-hmm. And that is something, too, that the nectars of the world, that the online brands, the most successful ones, have been extremely effective at. And, it, and again, it's an, it's it's even a level of granularity higher in terms of how they've been able to make their ad dollars work harder for them. Mm-hmm. Because not only are they focused on the 1%, but they're focused on that 1% at the moment. They're, they're able to disproportionately hit that 1% during those moments when they're actually thinking about this purchase. So they do, of course, do a lot of retargeting too, so that they're hitting them in other moments as well. It's not to say that they're focused entirely on that uh, but but just it's all about proportion. So they have some ads that do reach the 99, you know, they have, but most of their emphasis is on the 1%, and then they have a bunch of emphasis disproportionately on that moment in time where they're thinking about this purchase. So those are the things that make the ads work harder, the ad dollars work harder, and it's not nearly enough to say we're doing all this digital mm-hmm. or we're doing, we're doing something on Instagram. Uh, I mean, Instagram is not where people go shop for a mattress, let's be honest. Um, and so, so generally speaking, the people you're reaching there are, are, yeah. So it's not enough to, uh, focus just on digital platforms. The other thing that I think is an interesting concept I want to throw out there that I think potentially traditional brands can learn from online brands is about how they display information about their products. 
and the degree of detail and transparency that they have in providing information about their products. And I think this is interesting, or it maybe even uh, counterintuitive to a degree, because this is something that I think that online brands had a lot of success with in the early days. And I think we can learn from that, but that actually many of those same online brands have themselves gotten away from recently. They came out in the early going and were just like, hey, here's the deal. We've got four pound memory foam. And then underneath that, we got this like 70-30 blend of natural latex, uh, synthetic, natural th synthetic blend. And what it, they were just super transparent. 1.8 pound density base foam and this transition foam that's this and that. And all the certifications and whatever, they were just clear and explicit. And that was a refreshing change, I think, for consumers. Consumers mm -hmm. had not been accustomed. They've been accustomed to just what's inside the mattress being more or less a black box. Mystery. Yeah, or as a, you know, a white fluffy box, but nonetheless, <laughs> metaphorically, a black box. And they did not know what's in it. And I think that in the early days when these online guys leaned into being more transparent and clear about that, I think that benefited them and was a point of contrast that worked in their favor. They've subsequently, I think, done less and less of that as a, as a class of companies. Some companies have continued to lean into it just as heavily, if not more so, but, but some have moved away. And as a class, I'd say they, they've moved less of this. But nonetheless, I think the learning still is there. The learning is still there that, that can be adopted by traditional manufacturers that, hey, I think that this is something that resonates with people. Mm -hmm. People like the idea of knowing what's in the product that they're buying. Uh, they like the idea of it's sort of a proof point of what's what am I paying for? You know what this is quality. It it, it makes it convincing. You're going to make a claim about this or that. Having more transparency about the pro the the components that go into it helps make those claims more convincing to a skeptical consumer. And I think it's fair to say that mattress shoppers are a skeptical bunch in general. Having mm -hmm. most people come into this purchase pretty skeptical. So I think that there's learning to be had there that, that, that having more transparency, but, and maybe even if to the extent that transparency encourages more investment in quality, uh, is that, that actually could be a lesson as well, like upgrading some components that may be weak links as it mm -hmm. really, you know, if you were being fully transparent, you'd recognize that, well, this particular aspect of my product isn't going to come across that group. Well, maybe just a few extra dollars, we upgrade that component. And I, I think painting a picture that's, that's more convincing to the consumer by being able to do that, I think in the long run, that's a winning strategy for traditional manufacturers. Yeah, that transparency increased trust, which increases the mm -hmm. likelihood that I want to buy that product. And, and, and this is an, uh, an area for opportunity, um, which is the, the point about quality. Um, the more transparency should imply quality. Um, but I think there's an opportunity to help educate consumers on, on what quality means and why they should pay for it. Cause mm -hmm. I, those transparency with the numbers like density and stuff, consumers don't necessarily know exactly what that means. Um, but if you could kind of demonstrate, Hey, this is what that gets you in terms of quality uh, and longevity, let's say, then mm -hmm. I think it becomes really powerful.
Yeah. Yeah. And even, but that would just certainly be better. But even if you couldn't, even just saying, being able to yeah, say, even just having the transparency increases the trust. Even just having the transparency is, is better than where you are now. Because of course you're saying this is going to last longer or this is better, this is more this or that. But like having some numbers to kind of substantiate it at least is better than not. Yeah. And so. Yeah, it's saying we've got nothing to hide. Like yeah, we're exactly. We're proud, of, we're proud of our products. Here's, what, here's what's in them. It's a positive signal. In, yeah. in, in, in that respect. So I think that that I, I look at that as something that I think traditional brands could learn from online brands. And maybe even because of the fact that that online brands have not been leaning into that as hard, it's actually an area where traditional brands could potentially go on the offensive hmm. in, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, so those are our thoughts. We'll wrap it up there, I think. And uh, as always, we say, uh, if you, we hope you like what you're hearing. If you do, we'd love it if you uh, subscribe to the show and, and, and leave us a review. It'd be great. Apple Podcast is a great place to leave a review or even just a rating. Um, it helps other people discover the show. And so uh, we encourage you to do that. And in the meantime, we thank you for listening and we're out.